from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, November 19th. Today, the next steps and potential obstacles in the electoral process. Plus, why more men are dying of COVID. This week in Wayne County, Michigan, a drama has been playing out over vote certification, a part of the election process that is not usually very dramatic. There seems to be this back and forth over certifying election results. Two Republican county officials in Michigan's largest county, which includes Detroit, refused to certify the election results in that county. It is madness. I'm sorry. The Republican officials reversed course by the end of the night, just a short time after their initial move. Another shocking reversal. A two Wayne County Board of Canvassers now looking to rescind their election certification. Certifying the vote is a normal process that happens in every single election. So it should work pretty much like clockwork, even if it's a complicated clock. Trevor Potter is the head of the Campaign Legal Center. He also led John McCain's legal team when he ran for president. We called Trevor up to have him explain the process of what needs to happen between now and inauguration for Joe Biden to officially become the president. Well, let's start with where we are now. The press is reporting that former Vice President Biden is the president-elect, meaning that based on the reports out of the voting officials in every state, he has won enough states to have a clear electoral college majority. Now, those are referred to as unofficial results. They are from the officials. They are the vote counts that they have read off the machines. They're the numbers that every county and city has reported to the state officials. What's happening right now is that all across the country, they are canvassing those results, which means simply they're checking their numbers. Hmm. They will then have final numbers, which will be certified by each state through its own process. And even this is a part of the process that I had never really been aware of before. I mean, I guess it happens in every election, but we don't often talk about the certification process. But that's basically like the top election official of each state looking at all the results, looking at all the things that got ironed out um, in these last few days and weeks and basically saying, this is it. I am 100% confident that these are the results from my state. That's exactly what happens. But sometimes, and in fact, almost every election, there is a step before that. There's a hiccup in the process. And that is that some election, uh, usually for the House of Representatives, sometimes for the Senate, is really, really close in a state. Hmm. And most states have a legal line at which recounts occur. So it's either a half of a percent or in some states a percent. If it's that close, they won't go ahead and certify the apparent winner. They will go back and actually recount the votes. 
To be clear, this is not what's happening in Michigan. And Michigan actually isn't particularly close. So the Democratic governor of the state, Gretchen Whitmer, she actually pointed this out when she accused the Republican county officials of acting out of partisanship. There's no question that Joe Biden won the state of Michigan. He won it by 14 times the margin that Donald Trump won it just four years earlier. So we ran a great election, uh, no drama. It was fair and safe and secure. And we're going to um, we're going to see this through. In a few other states, though, the margins are small enough that there are recounts happening. Depending on the state, if the margin is within a percent or half a percent, there might be a recount. In those situations, it is common uh, or at least appropriate for there to be a recount. And this year we are seeing recounts in the presidential election in three states, Georgia because it's within the half a percent. Nevada, because any losing candidate may request it, and the Trump campaign has requested it, and Wisconsin, because it's within one percentage point, and the Trump campaign under Wisconsin law can pay for the recount, and they are doing that there. So these are all things that are going to be happening before the Electoral College meets. But once that happens, what happens then? Every state will certify, some after their recounts. Then those certified votes determine which presidential candidate won the election in that state and therefore which candidates' electors are going to meet. By tradition, it's called the safe harbor date. The the date this year is December 8th where every state will have certified their electors and we will know who is going to win when the electoral votes are cast and counted. So then it seems like everything after that is gravy, right? That it's just the Electoral College will meet, nothing can go wrong, that there aren't any other potential uh, logistical complications in this process. Uh, That's the theory. That's how it should work. And I think in reality, that is the outcome we are likely to see. But uh, like good uh, fiction writers, that there are several other potential plots that you could spin out instead of a, a very straightforward outcome from the safe harbor date to the electors meeting on the 14th in the state capitals to the votes being sent to Congress, and Congress opening them and counting them on January 6th and declaring Joe Biden as the president of the United States to be sworn in on January 20th. So then what are those potential complications that hopefully will not, but could come up during the actual meeting of the Electoral College? So the complication that could come up here, there there are a couple. One is that the Trump campaign has filed lawsuits in several states, particularly uh, the, the big suits are in Pennsylvania and Michigan, asking a federal judge to order the state officials not to certify the Biden victory in those states. Now, those are states that the margin of victory for Biden is too big to have a recount. And so they are going to be certified for Biden unless something happens. And in what I think I'd call a Hail Mary pass, Mm -hmm. the Trump lawyers have been 
filing lawsuits, a number of them in federal and state court, trying to somehow derail the Biden uh, electoral victory in those states. And they're doing that by saying there's hmm. something wrong with the voting system, or there's something wrong with the Biden votes, and it would therefore be wrong to certify him as the winner when the election may have uh, been so badly run or had so much inaccuracy in it that he may not be the winner. And again, there's no evidence for this. They are trying to derail the logical train of events that would lead to Biden as the winner on the safe harbor date and Biden electors being the ones who vote in those state capitals on December 14th. Hmm. What are other potential problems or challenges that could come up? Well, this one is, I think, at this stage, highly theoretical, but it is possible. And in some other year, when the Electoral College is closer than it is this year, what we could see is an attempt to have state legislatures get involved. Buried in this Electoral College system and in the Electoral Count Act uh, passed by Congress over 100 years ago is a provision that says if the state legislatures have turned over the voting to the citizens of the state, but that voting has somehow failed to produce a result that then the legislators could select the electors themselves because the voters have not done so. Hmm. Because you know, then the theory is that the power comes back to the legislature because they delegated to the citizens and the citizens didn't do it. And nobody is quite sure what Congress was thinking of in 1887 when they adopted that rule. But it has been assumed that it would refer to today, uh, let's say, a hurricane that hit on Election Day in Florida or Texas, and people literally could not vote. Hmm. Now, in those circumstances, it's possible the state would simply try to schedule an election a week later. But that would be a scenario where the legislatures could say, you know, the citizens didn't choose anyone for president. And so that has been the last possible gasp uh, in states where there are Republican legislatures and Biden barely won. And I would name that as Arizona. Wisconsin has a Republican legislature. Pennsylvania does. And so there, what the Trump lawyers are effectively trying to set up and failing at it it is a scenario where the Republican legislatures would say, you know, the election was so fraudulent. There were so many problems. We had all these illegal ballots. We don't really know who won. Even though they have no evidence of that. And, and there isn't. I mean, that's where they started in court was trying to get courts to say, don't certify because there's so much fraud, there's so much confusion, we need to take a close look. And had that been successful, then the next attempted step would have been to say to the legislatures, it's, it's tied up in court, there's all this evidence of fraud, the safe harbor date is approaching just the way it was in Florida in 2000, and you have to step in. Hmm. That's not happening because when these cases get to court, 
there is little or no evidence of fraud and certainly not enough to meet the relevant, I think, both legal and political standard, which is there is evidence of fraudulent votes greater in total than the Biden victory margin. Hmm. So it sounds like what you're saying is that there really isn't a feasible world where you would have state legislatures wielding significant influence in the actual meeting of the Electoral College. But then I hear people talk about this idea of faithless electors, which I'm not really sure what that means. And where does that fit in in the potential scenarios of what could go wrong here? Well, both of these, the idea of state legislatures intervening and the issue of faithless electors are the result of the fact that we have an electoral college system designed for a different world. Uh, It was designed when we did not have citizens voting for president. Uh, The founders never would have created two parallel systems. They created one where the legislatures were going to choose electors and electors were going to choose the president and pick the best man because that's what it was then, the best white male. That's not the world we live in, but we haven't gone back and redesigned the electoral college. So you have two issues here. One is this concept that somehow the legislatures used to have a role and would they try to have one again, which I think would be a constitutional crisis if it ever occurred and something we should worry about for future years. And then you have the fact that these electors are actually people. They're individuals who are selected for the purpose of voting for the winner of the election in each state. They're not supposed to have any sort of free exercise, free will vote under current democratic theories and under most state laws. But since they're actually individuals, there is the possibility that they will do something different than what they're told to do. Have we ever seen that before? Have we ever seen a quote unquote faithless elector just show up and say, I'm not voting for the people that my state voted for? Believe it or not, it happens with great regularity, meaning every four years, somebody or somebody's does that. We don't notice because it doesn't make a difference. We haven't had a election that was decided by only 270 votes going all the way back to 1876. So one faithless elector does not change the result. Last time, there were 10 electors Hmm. who didn't vote for the person they were supposed to. Some people were Clinton electors. They didn't vote for her. Some people were Trump electors, and they voted for Colin Powell. It leads to an asterisk in the history books because Trump, quote, won 306 electors, but he only got 304 electoral votes because two of the people committed to him didn't vote for him. So operating under the assumption that none of these potential kind of doomsday scenarios are actually either going to come to pass or would have a significant enough impact to be able to change the outcome of who gets the majority of votes in the Electoral College. Is it safe to assume at this point that even though the president is saying that he doesn't think that he lost and that he's questioning so many of these democratic processes, that that isn't going to be enough to really hamper the kind of machinery that's in motion to make the election results certain? I think that is 
the correct legal conclusion and, and the practical one that uh, the, the first of all, recounts very seldom change elections unless they're terrifically close, meaning, you know, 50 votes, 150 votes. The result is it looks like Biden will have, in fact, 306 electoral votes, the same total that Trump had last time when he said he'd won in a landslide and uh, far too many for any one state to change, whether it was a state in a recount or even if there was a successful challenge in Michigan or Pennsylvania through the courts, which I think we are not going to see. But if we did, removing Pennsylvania's 20 electoral votes from Biden and giving them to Trump wouldn't change the winner of the Electoral College. So legally, that's how this process is developing. The Biden leads are big enough in those states. There are enough of them that there is no one or even two states that really could flip those totals at this stage. Having said that, I do think it's important that we learn some lessons from this year, that things could have gone differently in terms of it all coming down to one or two states. If so, the problems in the mechanics of the Electoral College or the ability to try to overturn the voters' will in lawsuits could have been a problem for us, and in another year, may be a problem. Once you've opened Pandora's box and looked inside of it and seen all these tools lying around, I do worry that unless we make some changes, uh, someone will try to use them in another year when the result is closer and it is perhaps possible, unlike this year, to, to change it through extra means beyond what the voters uh, did on Election Day. Trevor Potter is the president of the Campaign Legal Center. And now one more thing. Back at the start of the pandemic, there was this observation that researchers and scientists noticed in clinical data, and that was that men were dying at higher rates than women. This was evident from the first data out of hospitals in China. Then we saw it in places like Italy and South Korea. It appeared in the United States, too, and it's persisted. In the U.S., for instance, by mid-October, CDC data show that the coronavirus has killed 17,000 more men than women. This is despite the fact that men and women appear to get coronavirus at the same rate. My name is Ben Garino. I'm a reporter on the Health and Science Desk at The Washington Post. When these numbers first came out, people who were aware of the difference of how gender can impact disease presented many different theories. They were wondering whether male behavior could be influencing why the disease was more severe. Maybe it was that in some of these countries, men were more likely to smoke, so their lungs were more vulnerable. A few researchers, though, right from the outset, suggested that 
well, we know women's immune systems tend to be stronger than men's, so maybe that could play a role too. And those hypotheses about the immune response, it looks like they're right. Research out of Yale University, for instance, shows that the T-cell response in men is comparatively weaker than that in women for people who have severe cases of the coronavirus. And T-cells are really critical components of the immune response. They can kill the coronavirus and help defeat coronavirus-infected cells, and they can also bring in other immune defenders. They're kind of like as one expert described it to me, conductors of an orchestra. So if your immune system has a bunch of different parts playing different roles, you have these T cells conducting it. Another study found that men are more likely to produce these molecules called autoantibodies. Those are molecules that hobble the immune system itself. It's like the body is fighting against its own immune response. And what that means is in men who have these autoantibodies, the virus is able to replicate more. You have higher viral loads because the immune system is kind of sabotaging itself. And that was overwhelmingly found in men more than women, which is kind of surprising because women are much more likely to get illnesses that involve autoantibodies such as chronic lupus. And we can't discount male behavior completely, even though in the United States, there's no evidence that men are more likely to get the virus than women, we still do see evidence that men, broadly speaking, aren't quite as concerned as women are. There have been health surveys, there have been observations, and men seem less likely to follow expert advice like wearing masks or staying socially distant. That we know that the coronavirus kills men more than women, that gender has a role, that can become part of the clinical regimen. I mean, we that can become part of data that we're tracking, that can possibly help inform therapies and other approaches, and it can help inform things like vaccine trials. We know, for instance, that women produce a stronger response to influenza vaccines, so it touches almost every aspect of, of health. And, and I think for me, it just really means that we can't discount it. Ben Guarino writes about health and science for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>